Uh, want to say welcome. Uh, my name's Tim. If uh, we haven't met before, I get to serve here as teaching adult education pastor on the pastoral team here. We are in a teaching series uh, this season before Easter, and the series is called Holy. And what we're attempting to do is we're, we're as a community, we want to draw our attention back uh, onto God. And um, I guess I'd say it this way, uh, you know, scripture and fathers of God throughout history have talked about God as holy, and this means God's transcendent, he's utterly unique, There's, he's incomparable, he's, he's just and pure and right, and uh, I think sometimes our attention uh, in the walk with God, we'll think about things we need to do or things God we want God to do for us, and, um, and during this season we want to pause in our attention to come back on who God is in and of himself. Who God is in and of himself, that he is uh, the, the desire of our hearts, and that by, uh, by looking at him, we believe that when we see God truly, as God knows himself to be, that either we will run in rebellion from him, or we will fall down in adoration. That's our, that's our heart for this community, to see God rightly and fall down in adoration this season. Today, the, the aspect of holiness we're going to talk about is God, the, the beauty of God. And that may, sound, uh, that may sound funny to you at first, but when we talk about, when we say something's beautiful, uh, usually we mean that, um, that, to, that some, for something to be beautiful, the, the perception of it is inherently enjoyable, Right? When something's beautiful, just to perceive it, to hear it, to see it, it's, it's enjoyable in and of itself. And for something to be beautiful doesn't mean that it's, it, we don't use it for some other ends. Uh, it's for something to be futile it means that thing is an end in and of itself. We believe this is true of God. God is an end in and of himself. To perceive him rightly is inherently enjoyable. Think for a moment, um, think for a moment, uh, over your life, when have been some times that you have experienced things that were deeply beautiful? I don't mean like shallow level pretty, but deep, when, have, when have been experiences of deep beauty, mesmerizing beauty for you? I think about my life and um, some things that come to mind uh, are uh, my wedding day. And Christy and I met in the sanctuary before the ceremony. I think about uh, my daughters and the first time each one of them smiled and laughed. I think about getting to uh, be up uh, near Everest Base Camp and walking out of the tea house in the middle of the night and seeing the night sky in the Himalayas. I think about um, getting to climb uh, Rainier with some friends and being on top of Mount Rainier as the sun was rising. One of, one of you had moments of incredible, just incredible beauty. We've all had those moments. Maybe it's a face of someone you care about. Maybe it's a, a work of art, a concert you were at. Maybe it's being out in creation, a, a moment in creation. But moments of not kind of just pretty, but like deep, awe-inspiring beauty. What, what is that sense of beauty we all have? 
it's not just, I don't think it's just this, um, this kind of evolutionary adaptation. We can't just reduce it to that. It's not just a social construct. We can't just reduce it to that. I believe that there is objectively, there is a standard and a source of beauty out there. But what is that? One of the um, theologians uh, in America centuries ago, Jonathan Edwards, he was writing in the 1700s, I believe, and many people have said Jonathan Edwards is the greatest theologian America has produced. He wrote this. He said, For as God is infinitely the greatest being, so he is allowed to be infinitely the most beautiful and excellent. And all the beauty, all the beauty to be found throughout the whole creation is but the reflection of the diffused beams of that being, namely God, who hath an infinite fullness of brightness and glory. What Edwards is saying uh, in his uh, early American dialect is he's saying that, that God is infinitely the most beautiful being there is. He is the source, the standard from which all other beauty derives its beautifulness. That all beauty we experience in all creation is a reflection, a participation in God who is beauty, capital B. Do you think of God as beautiful? When you, when you think of God, do you think this is one of the first things coming to mind is beautiful? I think for a lot of us, I think for a lot of us, we probably one of the first things that come to mind is like true. God is true. He's real. The, the, story, uh, the story of God is true. The, the story of Jesus is true. Or, may, or at least that's the major qualification. Maybe some people think, well, I'm not sure if it's true, but that's like where we start true. Or maybe good is another category we go to. When I think of God, he's good. He's just. He's right. He's loving. He's merciful. He's good. Yes. But throughout the history of people following God, one of the main things they said about God has been he is beautiful. That is, he is enjoyable. When, to perceive him rightly is enjoyable in and of itself. God is an end in and of himself. He is the desire of our hearts. And so 16, 1700 years ago, there's a, a theologian, Gregory of Nyssa. He said it this way. He said, for God is not dependent on anything for his beauty. His beauty is not limited to certain times or aspects, but he is beautiful by himself, through himself, and in himself. He is eternal beauty, not changing from one moment to the next. And so for followers of God throughout history, they have said that God is an end in and of God's self. He is inherently desirable that he is the one our hearts have been longing for. And to see him rightly is to find the longing of our hearts. Gregory of Nyssa, he wrote that uh, around the year, uh, like in the three, mid-300s. But even we're going to go today even centuries earlier to another follower of God. We're going to open up uh, our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 1 today. And Ezekiel is kind of two-thirds of the way through your Bible. It's after Lamentations. It's before Daniel. And just to, to provide some context, this is in the year, we're going to read about a vision here that took place in the year 594 B.C. So some 2,600 years ago, this vision took place. And uh, Ezekiel, he's probably about 30 years old. Uh, he was a priest in the temple in Jerusalem. And so this is 593 when this vision takes place. But 597, four years earlier... 
this huge empire in the ancient Near East, Babylon, came over to Israel, came to Jerusalem, and took over the place. And what they did is they took all the leaders of Jerusalem and the surrounding region captive and took them to Babylonia. And so um, in 597, they took the royal families, they took the priests, of which Ezekiel was one, they took soldiers, they took craftsmen, and they took them about 10,000 people, they took them captive, eight 900 mile journey. You can see that red arrow there. Uh, Jerusalem's on the, the west, the left. The eight, nine, 900 mile journey to Babylonia. And they set him up in villages there around Babylonia. And so now four years have passed. And here's Ezekiel. He's no longer practicing his vocation. He's in exile. He's worrying about his homeland. You, he's, you just wonder what is this head and heart space? The sense of loss, of powerlessness, perhaps apathy. This away from homeness, home, uh, this longing for home. And it's in this place that Ezekiel has this vision. So let's look at it now, starting in uh, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. In my 30th year, in the fourth month, that's July, on the fifth day, when I was among the exiles by the Kebar River, that's over in Babylonia, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. Skipping down to verse 4. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning surrounded by brilliant light. Think about, okay, we hear about an immense windstorm, lightning, and we, th- you know, we live in this climate controlled world of HDTVs. We watch movies about tornadoes. And we're like, oh, big. But th- if you're a person in the ancient Near East, a giant storm with flashing lightning, it's one of the largest, most immense, powerful things you've ever seen. One of the loudest things you've ever seen. And so here, Ezekiel's just, I saw this giant storm, flashing lightning coming towards me. And then uh, picking up again in the second half of verse 4, the center of it, the center of the fire looked like glowing metal. And in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human. But each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight. Their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead, and they did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of them, each of the four had a face of a human being, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left side, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading out upward, each wing touching that of the creature on either side, and each one had two other wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead, and wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire, or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. All right, so I started today saying we're going to talk about the beauty of God. And you might be hearing this and thinking, that sounds hideous. It's not beautiful. 
These creatures, these are uh, cherubim, we'll later find out in the book of Ezekiel. And cherubim, throughout the ancient Near East, cherubim, there often be statues, and cherubim were these kind of mixed creatures. Uh, creatures, uh, uh, spiritual beings with parts from different creatures. And uh, in, in throne rooms or in temples, there'd be statues of cherubim guarding the sacred presence there. And in uh, this is an artist's rendering of the temple in Jerusalem. There are statues, and in fact, on the walls, embroidery of cherubim, these spiritual beings that guarded the presence of God. And so when we see these cherubim being mentioned, we know we're going to be, we, this is the presence of God coming in this storm. And when we think, we hear the description of the cherubim, we think, oh, that's Sounds, that sounds hideous, but we need to hear it like a person in the ancient Near East would. And what's being pulled together here is um, the most excellent of these different creatures in creation. So what is the most excellent of the wild animals? The lion. It embodies the excellence of the lion. What is the most excellence of domesticated creatures? The ox. It embodies what is excellent about the ox. What is the most excellent about birds in the air? The eagle embodies the excellence of the eagle. And then what is the, the creature that, it's, that, that um, bears the image of God, the human, and it bears characteristics of the human? So this is meant to be, it's meant to convey the excellence of these creatures and come before the presence of God. So continuing, uh, verse 15 here. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. So four creatures, four wheels, just so orient ourselves. We're seeing a chariot is what we realize what's going on here. Um, so it's this, uh, it's this chariot vehicle. This, uh, verse 16, this was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. And as they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not change directions as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. And you're thinking, what chariot wheels with eyes? What is going on? Okay, what is most likely being talked about here, reference, is um, that uh, in Babylonian texts, talking about wheels with eyes was to refer to uh, uh, oval gems set into the rim of the chariot wheel. And so what it's talking it's picture like diamond encrusted rim here. I mean you've seen like nice expensive rims on cars before. How about diamond encrusted chariot wheels? High and awesome. God when he takes his chariot out, it is a souped up all-terrain vehicle, right? That's what it's, it's, this is the divine chariot. That is what the image is of. Now, of course, you're like, wait, does, why, why is, why is God showing Ezekiel a vision of this, this incredible chariot? What is going on there? If you, if you are in exile, 800, 900 miles from home, and what, you're asking yourself questions like, did our God get defeated? Is our God stuck back in Jerusalem? Has he left us here? See, I don't think God literally has a chariot that he needs to get in if he's going to go anywhere. But God, I do believe God literally gave Ezekiel this vision to communicate a truth about himself. What does God appearing in a chariot communicate to somebody in exile? I can travel anywhere. I'm with you there. I'm with you in your exile. 
Continuing on, we're going to skip down to verse 22 here. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures. Remember chariots. So what we're going to see now is like the top platform of the chariot. Spread out above their heads was what looked something like a vault, a platform, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out toward the other and each had two wings covering his body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. And when they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with their lowered wings. Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. So we've got the chariot, the wheels, we've got the creatures holding up the platform, this throne. It says it looks like lapis lazuli. Here's a picture of lapis lazuli. It's this blue semi-precious stone with these gold flecks in it. And it, so it's got this, this incredible throne on top. And then we're coming to the apex of the vision, uh, this, this one who is on the throne, the center of the vision. And I think one of the reasons that um, Ezekiel's taken so much time to describe the chariot and the animal is because it is so difficult for him to find words to describe what he's going to see when it comes to the one on the throne. And so he's describing the beauty of of the chariot itself as a reflection of the one who is on the throne. But let's read the center of the vision here. Verse 27. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as a full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. When it, when it says this, like the appearance of rainbow in clouds on a rainy day, the, like this radiance around him, what comes to my mind, have you ever seen this um, where, where on a sunny day with the right kind of clouds, there can be a, a rainbow halo encircling the sun? Has anybody ever seen that before? I, I saw it for the first time just a couple years ago. It's spectacular. This is the type of thing I picture Ezekiel is trying to communicate to us. And then uh, the second half of verse 28, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Ezekiel here, he is just stretching language to communicate this this vision that he had. Even that last, even that last verse there, he's saying, well. I didn't, it wasn't totally the Lord. It was the glory of the Lord. It was the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. He's just stretching to communicate what he experienced. Because, of course, um, it's, it's beyond, I mean, God is a spiritual being. God is non-physical. And so God is, yes, Ezekiel had this vision, but God's trying to give Ezekiel a vision that communicates truth about who God is. But it's not like God literally has a chariot parked in the God garage. But he's trying to communicate, Ezekiel, this is who I am. He's communicating the beauty, the immensity, the splendor, the awe-inspiring nature of who he is. And think about, think about Ezekiel. Think about him as a man. Here, here, you got a guy, 30 years old, when he was 26, this Babylon army comes in, takes him from his homeland, takes him from the place he grew up, takes him from his vocation, the priesthood, now he's been in exile for four years. He's worried about his country. 
mean, what would, think about the possible apathy that would creep in. Maybe I'm just going to live here forever. This is it. I'm just going to be here forever. Maybe the, the temptation to just, maybe I should just become like the Babylonians. Stop trying to follow this God that I've been following my life. Maybe the, the discouragement, even despair. And what I find so interesting is the end of this situation, this exile part of Ezekiel's heart, this exile part of his life. God doesn't come to Ezekiel and say, hey, Ezekiel, here's a bunch of rules I need you to follow. He doesn't say, hey, Ezekiel, here's some instructions. This is what you need to start doing. He doesn't say, hey, Ezekiel. He doesn't even say, hey, Ezekiel, this is what I'm going to do for you. He says, Ezekiel, look at me. Look at me. In the midst of the exile of your heart, come and look at me. I am the beautiful one. I am the desire of your heart. I am the one your heart has been longing for. Look at me, Ezekiel. When we talk about the beauty of God, we don't mean uh, the kind of this shallow, hey, God is pretty or something like this. We mean beauty is, is enjoyable. The mere perception is desirable in and of itself. It's an end in and of itself. We say God is the most beautiful. We mean he is the ultimate desire of our hearts, the ultimate joy in and of himself. And not even that there's like some part of God is beautiful, kind of he's got his, this beautiful section or something like that, that, that every aspect of who God is, is, desire, is, is enjoyable in and of itself. That God's justice is beautiful. God's mercy is beautiful. God's creativity is beautiful. God's, God's trinity, God existing as three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, loving one another from eternity past is beautiful. God's action in human history to step into people's lives and rescue them is beautiful. The story of the gospel, the Son of God coming to earth as a human man, loving those on the margins, giving his life for his enemies. The story of his sacrifice is beautiful. God is that God is the desire and longing of our hearts in and of of himself. Our hope in talking about this, we believe that every one of us, this is, this is what it means to be human. We are all wired with this longing. And our hope in talking about this is to, as a community to come back again. We believe what we long for, what we desire most deeply, shapes who we are as individuals and as families and as a church family, we want to desire, we want our chief desire to be the right one, the one who is worthy of it. And that not only we would grasp it in our heads, but we would grasp it with our hearts, that our hearts would be moved, that this would drive out apathy. Our hearts would be moved in longing towards the one who is beauty, the desire of our hearts. I have just a, a few quick takeaways, and then we're going to move back to worship. One, if you're here today and you would say, you know, I, am, I wouldn't call myself a Christian. I, I'm, ex, I'm exploring, I'm interested, I'm curious, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't categorize myself that way. If you're here and that's you, I would say this. Uh, if you have been in your journey, if you have been handed an ugly vision of God and rejected it, 
please don't confuse that with rejecting the true and good and beautiful God of all reality. I've talked to people, I've read things before, and they'll talk about this ugly vision of God they've been handed and they reject it. And I think, yeah, I don't believe in that God either. That's not the God of reality. God is the, the desire of our hearts. Two, if you're here this morning, you say, I am a Christian, but Tim, I've got to be honest with you, my heart, when you talk about this, it just, I feel nothing. I just feel apathy. I feel numbness. I don't get excited. I would encourage you to cultivate longing. I believe every one of us has that, that spark of desire. Yes, I know. I know that's what I'm made for. Start with, I want to want to want to experience the beauty of God. I want to want to experience God as the longing of my heart. Start there and cultivate longing. A great read this week. You might look it up on the internet. Um, a sermon essay by C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory. W-E-I-G-H-T, weight of glory. Uh, really good. If you want to cultivate long and read through that, I'd encourage that. And then finally, if you're here this morning and you say, I've, I've had these moments. I've had moments in worship or I've moments in prayer or moments um, in community where I've, I've ta- where I've experienced God as beautiful, as the one my heart desires. I'd encourage you to share it. Ezekiel wasn't given this vision just for Ezekiel's self. What did he do with it? He shared it. It was, it was for the sake of the community. Let's be a community when God gives us the gift of these moments of encountering him and his beauty, that we be a community that shares that, that, that encourages one another and not. In appropriate times and places with your family or your housemates or your small group, it would be a place that shares those moments. I want to invite the worship team back up now, and uh, I'd just like to pray over us uh, towards this end. Uh, Would you pray with me? Lord God, we we do, we recognize um, the truth in this, but sometimes uh, it takes a while for our hearts to catch up. And uh, I would, I would just ask for myself and for those of us in this room, for for, for ways that we see you incorrectly, uh, that you take that away. That we would see you today more the way you know yourself to be. I pray that um, in places where apathy has creeped into our hearts, that you would, um, you would capture us again with a vision of you as the beautiful one. And I pray that you would cultivate that longing in our hearts. And I pray that we, you uh, would create in us a community that shares, that lifts one another up, that shares our moments of encountering you. Right. We thank you for who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.